Your scriptures at hand, if you will, please, and go with me to the New Testament, to the book of Titus. It would be chapter 2. It's beyond the book of Timothy, near the ending of the New Testament. Chapter 2, the book of Titus. On the occasion of last Sunday and our brother Don's encouraging and uplifting remarks and also today regards to this gift and blessing from the church and from you to my wife and I. I want to so live my life that I'll always be found worthy of your expressions. My biggest problem is not you. My biggest problem is not the government. It's not my wife, my children. My biggest challenge is me. And every day I've got to crucify something of my flesh. And I appreciate your indulgences and your kindness. I could be very vulnerable here to tell you that I often go to bed wishing I'd made that one more call or did that one more counseling session or made that additional hospital visit. I have very capable help, help here, very capable men and women of God, but there's just something about wanting to get it done. I am grateful to you, will always be grateful. That knowing you have multiple options on the way from your house to this house where you could go to worship, you have elected by the grace of God to come worship here. I never come to this pulpit flippantly. The most frightening moments of my life every week is right now. If you were to touch my fingers, my hands are frigid. They're cold. There's some butterflies in my stomach. I've been doing this for 28 years almost, but I never get used to it. That tells me I need the Holy Ghost. On the lighter side, however, on the lighter side, there were three kids bragging about the income that their fathers make. That being the child of a professional ball player, the child of a doctor, and the child of a pastor, preacher. The professional ball player says, my daddy plays one game on Sunday. He makes so much money. I mean, he makes thousands and thousands of dollars. And he just gets a big old fat check. One game. Works one time a week. Well, the doctor's son thought, how can I top that? My daddy do one surgery. One surgery. One hospital. And he makes so much money, he outdoes your daddy. Well, the preacher kid thinks, my Lord, how am I going to top that? He said, my daddy preaches one sermon. I thought about this when he called the ushers up and it takes ten men to pick up his offering. (laughs) Yes. That was on the lighter side, okay? Verse 11, chapter 2, Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself 
His own special people, zealous for good works. May God add His anointing and favor to His Word. Would you say amen to that? You might be seated in the presence of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Keep your Bibles open, would you? I would encourage you to participate in all of our special activities as it approaches Christmas. Next Sunday evening, a very delightful presentation by our children's ministry. And of course, the Sunday beyond, the choir will present a wonderful Christmas cantata on the 16th. On Christmas Eve, which is on a Monday evening, we will have two services for you and your family, communion and candlelight service, 5 and 7 o'clock. And then there on the website, Mike Steigel, our media director, has prepared all the information you need for every Christmas activity that you might elect to be involved with. A man's prayer also on Monday evenings. I've been preaching a series of lessons on the, in the title, Being Grace Undeserving Yet So Rewarding. This is lesson number four. And in studying the subject of grace, there is a potential danger, one that I'd like to address when we talk about grace in our time together now. In this series, among numbers of things that I have told you about grace, I have said to you that God's grace will find you first. I didn't find Jesus one day. He found me. I told you also that God's grace pursues us. He loves us so much He doesn't just wait for us to accidentally run into Him. He just sets us up all over the place with our grandma and our grandpa and our preacher and a gospel song and, and, and some, some kind of divine visitation. God's grace, grace pursues us. And I also told you, among other things, that God's grace carries us. I've told you that you cannot earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift of God, this thing of grace. No matter where you've been, what you've done, who you've done it with, how long you've stayed there, His grace is available. Our text says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all, all men. His grace is available. On the first of these series of sermons, I spoke to you about a woman caught in the act of adultery, who by the law of Moses was worthy of death by stoning. And the title of that message was, To Stone or Not to Stone. On the Sunday after, I told you about a man by the name of Mephibosheth. He was the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan. Mephibosheth was lame, crippled in both of his feet, because his nurse was carrying him to safety as a five-year-old child when it was discovered that his father his and grandfather both died and David was coming to the throne. His nurse, Mephibosheth's nurse, knew that most of the king that came to power succeeding a previous king would kill the line of those who might come to power from the former king's family. So Mephibosheth was lame on his feet. But God, through David, gave him grace. And then I told you last Sunday as I spoke to you about a runaway preacher by the name of Jonah. I told you, and I titled the sermon last Sunday, You Can Run, 
but you can't hide. And how the woman caught in the act of adultery, Mephibosheth, and the runaway prophet, all were recipients of grace. But what are we to do after this great grace has been given to us? Thus the title today, Responding to Grace. There is a danger as we measure and appreciate the scope of grace, there is the danger that some will take advantage of this grace. Some would exploit its generosity. Two questions. Knowing that God will catch some people, knowing that God will catch them when they fall, might they fall on purpose again? Another question. Does Jesus' forgiveness of my sins give me permission to remain in my sins? The answer to that is found in more than one place in Scripture. But for our reference purposes, I would like to bring up Romans 6, verses 1, 2, and 15. Here's the answer. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? The answer again. Certainly not. Brothers and sisters... Ladies and gentlemen, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus' forgiveness of my sins does not give me permission to remain in my sin. You would recall, and I would refresh your memory, that he said to the woman who was granted life-saving, forgiving grace, caught in the act of adultery, John 11 Pardon me, 8 and 11, he said to her, after all of her accusers walked away with an inability to condemn her and cast stones at her, because Jesus prefaced their actions by saying, any of you in this crowd that drugged this woman by her hair, semi-clothed in my presence, wanting to kill her, Any of you without sin, you throw the first stone. And they began dropping their stone and their rocks and boulders and leaving Jesus in the presence of this woman uh, who was bending in his presence in humility. Jesus, after he asked her, woman, where are thine accusers? And she looked around and she says, Lord, I have none. Jesus said, I love this. He's done it for me more times than I have fingers and toes to count. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But it's not the end of the story. Go and sin no more. What Jesus is saying is, he is telling her, stop doing what you've been doing that got you in this mess in the first place. Stop making sin the habit of your life. That's how we respond to grace. Let me, let me elaborate. He said 
these words to that woman because the possibility existed that she would think that sin is no big deal and I can always come to Jesus to get forgiveness after I have had my fun. She might think, we're forgiven, now let's go party. I'm glad the offering's already received because it's going to get worse before it gets better. No refunds. Did that what you said? No refunds? But we will take late payments. That's what it I should leave some stuff alone. Sin is a big deal. Listen to me. God didn't send His Son Jesus to the cross and Jesus didn't voluntarily relinquish Himself of His majesty and glory and power and cows Himself in Emmanuel, God with us, the flesh of a baby and grew into a man. And voluntarily hung on the cross and suffered the ignominious death of a crucifixion just because we wanted to have some story in the Bible or have a movie about Calvary. Sin is a big deal. Jesus took our place. And I say to you that we are not required to be sinless before we can be forgiven. But once we have been forgiven, our goal and our all-consuming passion are to live holy lives out of love for the one who gave so much for us. What should be my response to grace? Not to keep on sinning. Because grace fosters obedience. Or it should. Grace promotes obedience. I, I, I say that because I have seen places in Scripture where this is so true. Most all of us are acquainted with the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. And when you read his entire story and you come to the end of it, you have a great appreciation that he is now a hero of Scripture. But he didn't begin as a hero. God had entrusted Joseph as a young boy, a teenager, with dreams and visions. And God favored his life with grace and goodness. And when he began to share his dreams and visions with his brothers, 11 of them, they became very envious and jealous of his dreams and visions. And they figured that, that, that he implied that one day, that he being the junior, that they, the senior brothers, would have to bow down to him. And he was simply just saying what God had given him. They got so jealous of him. They put him in a pit with the intention of killing him when they came one day to inquire about their well-being sent by his father. They put him in a pit. They sold him to a bunch of travelers, a caravan of travelers. He was now estranged from his father who loved him dearly, being the youngest child. His brothers, in order to make themselves look good about the absence of Joseph took his beautiful coat his father had designed for him, killed an animal, dipped his coat in blood, took the coat to his father and said, uh, our brother Joseph, we, don't, we do not have any remains of him, but this coat that's so bloody, it's very apparent that a savage beast consumed him. His father grieved for years. And all, in, all the while, they had it in their heart. They sold him. 
But in the process of being abandoned by his brothers and, and left to his own self, he was sold to a caravan. A caravan sold him to a person by the name of Potiphar, who was a high-ranking official in Egypt. According to the story that most of you know, during his time as a servant in Potiphar's house, Joseph enjoyed the favor of God. Let me tell you, if you live for God, I don't care where the devil tries to put you. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. If you've got to go into surgery like David Barnett may have tomorrow, God's going to get glory out of that. The devil may mean something else, but David's going to rise up and before they even do anything with him, he's going to have a prayer. Whatever the devil tries to do to take you into bondage and captivity and put you in a pit or put you in a prison, God is going to give you favor if you just keep responding to His grace with obedience. Here's what the Bible says about the favor that Joseph enjoyed in the book of Genesis chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. The Lord made all he did to prosper. The Lord blessed the Egyptians as Potiphar's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. Can I get an amen? God was so good to Joseph that Potiphar left everything in his house under Joseph's supervision. He turned the whole house over to Joseph, which, when you read the story, might have been a mistake. Not on Joseph's part, but on Potiphar's part. While Potiphar was away traveling, the scripture says, his wife grew very interested in Joseph. She, according to one version of the Bible, says she cast longing eyes on him, so much so that she attempted to seduce him to be intimate with her in the absence of her husband. The temptation was likely very strong, as all temptations can be. Joseph was, after all, a young man all alone in a distant land. And probably the devil deposited in his mind, saying to him, Surely God would understand a brief encounter with your master's wife, a brief rendezvous or or a little tryst with her. I mean, after all, you suffered so much. Surely God would understand, right? Wrong. Look at the strong words of Joseph in response to his master's wife's seduction. He says in chapter 39, verse 9, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? God's kindness to Joseph in his captivity stirred up holiness. In Joseph's life. Oh, come on, give me an amen. It could have stirred up hate and bitterness and strife. But grace said to him, I could have been in a worse shape. My master is gone. His cattle are under my command. His servants are under my command. I know the combination to his vault is under my command. All his food, all of his livestock, even his wife is under my care. I could be in jail or I could be dead. My brothers could have killed me anyhow. But God's been so good to me. I can't help but not sin against God. While nobody else is looking, God's looking. And He will reward my obedience. Go ahead and give the Lord a clap, somebody. You see, what should our response be? Well, we go back to our text. Look on the screen. The same grace that worked in Joseph works in us. 
For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. What should be our response? This marvelous grace that God gives us, write this down if you take notes. Grace should do a lot of things in us, but it should do two things in particular. Grace should comfort us, and grace should convict us. You heard me, didn't you? Comfort and convict. I like the way Max Lucardo puts it in his most recent book entitled, Grace More Than We Deserve, Greater Than We Imagine. Just finished reading it this week. Look what Max Lucardo says about our response to grace. If you catch yourself thinking, I can do whatever I want because God will forgive me, then grace is not happening to you. Selfishness, perhaps. Arrogance, for sure. But grace, no. Grace creates a resolve to do good, not permission. I feel a. Not permission to do bad. Oh, I'm telling you. The more gracious people are to us, knowing we deserve penalty. Man, if we're standing before a judge and we deserve 30 days in the slammer or three years, but he says, I'm going to write it off. We want to go shine his shoes, wash his car, and laundry his clothes. Come on and help me here. We don't want to go find someplace else we can snort it up and shoot it up and rob someplace and cuss and lie so we can come before this same judge later on and find out he's not going to only throw us for 30 days. He's going to throw us in there for the rest of our life. If grace does anything, grace should teach us some lessons about doing right. Among the lessons our text tells us that we should do in responding to grace is that we should deny ungodliness. Lesson number one. I'm hurrying here. You see, when you are born again, we call it salvation. Salvation is not only a change in our position. Our position being that we were in sin, lost without God. In bondage, maybe not physically, but emotionally, mentally, and sometimes physically. We were in the shackles and chains of sin, shame, bad life, bad reputation. But when we got saved, God set us free from the slavery of sin, and our position was changed. But salvation is more than a change of position. It's a change of attitude. Oh, you see, I wrestle between preaching and teaching, and I'm right in the middle of it. It, uh, Salvation is not just a change of position. It's a change of attitude, appetite, ambition, and action. Write it down. It's a change of attitude, appetite, actions, and ambition. In our text, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. The word teaching in verse 12 has the idea of disciplining. After we are born again, we are continually being disciplined by God's grace. Trained to be the kind of people that glorify God. Please write this down or get it in your computer of your mind. The same grace that redeems us from sin reforms our lives and makes us godly. I uh, should have had T.D. Jakes to say that. We might have got a bigger shout. 
not going to go back to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Because after you get saved, the devil give you about six weeks vacation or three weeks. And then he comes knocking at your door, lifting up the same lust and evil and sin. You get the text, you get the email, you run by the same joint. You get a, Because after you get saved, you're not glorified all of a sudden. You still got to wrestle stuff. The pastor, you telling me I'm able to leave for my old life and continue my, my, my new life? The same grace that redeems us is available to reform us so that we might live godly. This word deny, deny in the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, it means to disown. In, in other words, the believer, if you're born again, say amen, then you're a believer. The believer is taught... To take a stand against the natural ungodliness we've been born with. And we deny that ungodliness that tries to come back again up in our life. When it tries to come back up, we deny that ungodliness the right to express itself in our lives. Thus we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit of God. When we get saved, old things are passed away. Old things are new. The Spirit of God moves in us. There's a war going on between our spirit and flesh. We deny ungodliness and we express the Spirit of God. You know, brothers and sisters, before we were saved, we expressed our ungodliness. Yeah, go ahead and say amen. Some of you are struggling with it now after you got saved. So, unless I have people stand up and give examples, we all go ahead and say amen. Before we got saved, we expressed our ungodliness. The Bible said in the book of Jude has only one chapter. It says when God comes, He's going to come to execute judgment on all. Look at the screen. He's going to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Once we're saved, however, we do not express ungodliness. We begin to express godliness. Here, here, here's a thought I want you to get. Denying ungodliness is the acid test of genuine conversion. Can I get an amen? amen? Yeah. To repress the old man by the Spirit of God, the old woman, the old habits, the old attitudes, the old appetites, is the acid test to know when you, at last time before you got saved, they said that to you, you gave them a piece of your mind. The problem with you and I is that we've given away so many pieces of our mind, we ain't got enough left to make our own mind. Before we got grace, the last person to cut off in front of us on Interstate 285 and sharply caused us to panic, we waved at him. But a one finger wave, and I ain't going to demonstrate. That comes up again, come on. I'm not going to give too many illustrations that I indict myself even more. Denying ungodliness. John Newton was a captain of a slave ship, and he was big in a slave trade. In the days when England ruled the world, and they colonized most of the known world, and one of the ways that they gained much wealth from other places was by the enforced slavery of so many, and especially Africans. And John Newton was part of that lucrative slave trade. One time he was captain of a ship that continued to transport 
slaves from Africa to the Indies and other parts of Europe and the world. He was vulgar and profane and many times sexually exploited slaves and allowed his crew to do the same. He was vicious. According to his, the story, he, he became seriously ill and eventually became a slave of a slave. Be very careful what goes around. Ooh, ain't nobody excused. Nobody. Became a slave of a slave. He thought things couldn't get much worse. After he was released, he went on his way back, sailing back to the English shores. A storm arose on the sea on the very vessel he was on. And it threatened the ability of the vessel, the ship, to stay afloat because a large hole was created in the hull and water was coming in, thus sinking the vessel. And John Newton, as he saw others doing, began to pray. And God miraculously caused the cargo in the hull to float when the water came in. It sealed off the gaping hole in the hull and the boat was able to drift to safety. And on that day, John Newton gave his heart to Jesus Christ. But listen to this. He continued for a little while in the slave trade. But God began to deal with him. Matter of fact, he later became a minister of the gospel. And he began to write pamphlets and began to speak against the horrific nature of slavery. He wrote the beautiful hymn that will never die, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that Ishokorobad saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, but now that's you. That's you. That's you didn't save yourself. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Just grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Somebody thank God for grace. John Newton became an Anglican preacher he befriended a young man by the name of William Wilberforce William Wilberforce was elevated to the government of the British Parliament it is William Wilberforce who years later passed a bill through the English Parliament that ended slavery in the British Kingdom Here is a man, John Newton, who denied ungodliness. What should be our response to grace according to our text? To deny worldly lust. Boy, sometimes I'm reluctant for people to join the church. I don't give membership opportunities, but four times a year. Because I've seen people who join our church, are so excited about us, join our church, and they never come back. It's like they got raptured. And I'm thinking, but I'm still here. So I know the... You You know, it's kind of like you first get saved when you first join South Metro Ministry. Boy, I want to tell you something. You hang around here long enough, you're going to be disappointed in me if if you're getting your life from me. And let me cover myself. I hang around you long enough and... We're going to know each other. When you get saved and we get saved, grace doesn't just snatch us up and rapture us. Although that might take more people to heaven faster and keep them saved longer than having a chance to go back. 
after salvation, we're left in a world of sin so that we have to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That process means that we do this. And I'm going to put it on the screen and I'll read it to you. 1 John 2:15 and 16 and 17. Listen to this about the world. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Simply put, if we love the things of the world, we lose the love of the Father, and we cease to do His will. Please listen to me. I'm preaching to me, but I'm also saying this to you. God didn't send you here by accident. Anything in our lives that dulls our love for spiritual things or makes it easy for us to sin is worldly and it must be put away. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and materialism. Can I get a witness here, somebody? Yes, your wife will not tolerate you having another (laughs) interest on the side. Unless she is, my wife is not here. Unless, I'll use another word. Unless she's not bright. Ladies, vice versa. Your husband will not tolerate you having another interest on the side. Because if you truly love your husband and your wife, you're jealous over that love. Can I get an amen here? Ooh, Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm jealous over you. Love not the world nor the things of the world. Because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. All that's in the world. Let me tell you something. The flesh, we don't owe our flesh nothing. The flesh has done nothing to us but brought us trouble. Y'all helping me preach here? If you live after the flesh, you'll die after the flesh. We don't owe the flesh, but we owe the Spirit of God something. We owe the Holy Spirit of God. Can I get a witness from this church? It's the Spirit of God that convicts us of our sins and and causes us to repent. It's the Spirit of God that guides us into all truth. Can I get an amen? It's the Spirit of God that keeps us resisting the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's the Spirit of God that's our comforter, our teacher, our guide. It's the Spirit of God that's our baptizer. It's the Spirit of God that will help us to be ready to be the bride of Christ. We owe our flesh nothing. We are to deny our flesh and build up the Spirit of God. Give the Lord some praise. Uh, uh, uh. You know, look, look, look at the. Let, let me give you something else. I'm going to hurry. The Bible says our response to grace is to live soberly. Amen. Soberly means that I exercise self control over my passions and desires so I won't give my way over to sinful lust. Amen. Soberly. Don't mean just about sobriety and drinking. Live soberly. Think, man. Amen. Think, woman. Right, Stop. Check it out. Be sober. Be vigilant. I'm trying to teach it. I'm getting it. You know, most of you in this church misquote me every time. You just quote me for your convenience, just like I do some other people. And all you think about, I have a great sermon, and the only thing you could think about is, I said the spirit of slap. And it's coming on me now.
Live soberly. Wake up. Like that aftershave commercial, hit yourself in the face. Turn the TV off. Throw away the remote. Shoot the computer if it's sending you to hell. Come on and say an amen. Empty the refrigerator of the booze. Clean up your act. Get rid of the pornography. Put a screen on the computer. Wake up, man. For a man getting an offering, I should be preaching more about other kind of grace. He said, our response to grace should be to live righteously. Let me tell you this. Romans 8, look at the screen. I'm hurrying. Romans 8, 12 to 13. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit of God in you, you put to deed the deeds of the body, you will live. Live righteously. Look at the last phrase of verse 13. But if by the Spirit of God, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. This is the New King James. The, the King James says, but if by the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the body. The word mortify means to put to death. If you don't believe it, ask a mortician. They mortify. Sometimes we kind of walk around thinking, I got grace so I can do whatever I want. God just throw some pixie dust on me and I won't feel like doing that. If you... No, no, no. You still got your free will. And you got you to mortify some stuff. Oh, help me, Holy Ghost. To live godly. To live godly. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 and 12, and, Yeah, all those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We are to live right in this life. I said we are to live. Mm. It preaches itself. And then the last thing, the seven things that you learn from grace, and I'll close with this. Looking for the rapture. Paul says, my response to grace is that this world is not my home. You know the world's supposed to end in a few days. Where y'all been? December 21, 2012. And if you believe that, I got some people who got literature from Y2K that will give it to you free because it was supposed to end there. If you believe that, I got people who said 88 reasons why Jesus has come in in 1988. They got some stuff stockpiled that I'll get you free. No man knows the day or the hour. No man. No man. Because if the world really was coming to end in December 21, 2012, even Christians are sin like, you know what, up until the last minute. Because they're counting on grace. Looking for the blessed hope. In verse 11, he talks, the, the, the writer talks about the first coming of the Lord. Verse 11, and I'm hurrying. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That was the first coming of Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem's manger. Grew up into manhood, lived to be 33 and a half years old when he offered himself as a sacrifice. That was his first coming. Upon his departure, he said in John 14 and 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so... I would have told you. Verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I, I, I am saying to you that your response to grace is that Jesus Christ is coming soon. And the word looking, look, 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 it says looking for the blessed hope. Verse 13, the word looking means to expect. If you got company coming to your house for Christmas, you would like to know that they're coming ahead of time. Can I get it? And some of us are planning family visits with the expectation, the looking to. So that we won't be caught by surprise and our house be untidy. You don't want your house to be untidy. You don't want one day for a trumpet to sound. And the the sound, the trumpet, it'll happen so fast. It could happen right now. The Bible said the trumpet of the Lord shall sound. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with. It'll happen so fast. No CNN, ABC, NBC, MSNBC, whatever. None of those cameras will have. Well, the, the shutters in them are not so fast they could capture the rapture. In the in the moment of a twinkling of an eye. I like to do this once a year. This is the time of year I do it. It could happen like this. It was the night before Jesus came. And all through the house, not a creature was praying, not one in the house. Their Bibles were laid on the shelf without care, in hopes that Jesus would not come near. The children were dressing to crawl into bed, not once ever kneeling or bowing their head. And mom in her rocker, with baby on her lap, she was watching the late show while I took a nap. When out of the east there rose such a clatter, I sprang to my feet to see what was the matter. Away to the window, I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. When what to my wondering eyes would appear, but angels proclaiming that Jesus is here. With a light like the sun sending forth a bright ray, I knew in a moment this must be the day. The light of his face made me cover my head. It was Jesus returning just as he said. And though I possess worldly wisdom and wealth, I cried when I saw him in spite of myself. In the book of life, which he held in his hand, was written the name of every saved man. He spoke not a word as he searched for my name. When he said, it's not here, my head hung in shame. The people whose names had been written with love, he gathered to take to the Father above. With those who were ready, he rose without a sound while all the rest were left standing around. I fell to my knees, but it was too late. I had 
waited too long. And that sealed my fate. I stood and I cried as they rose out of sight. Oh, if only I had been ready. Ready tonight. You see, in the words of this poem, the meaning is clear. The coming of Jesus is drawing near. There's only one life. And when comes the last call, we'll find that the Bible was true after all. Heads bowed. Heads bowed. Every grace given person. Let me phrase it better. Everyone receiving and have received grace. Whisper a prayer. There are others who are not in the fold yet. And this is the season. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Pastor Allen, I cannot begin to tell you the amount of times that God's been gracious to me, sir. And I have to confess that there are times when my response to grace was greed and not gratitude. I went on sinning. I went on abusing, thinking I got a free pass to heaven and I could live like I want. And I know that that's not the way I should be responding. I've been given so much, deserve so little. I want God to change my actions, my appetite, my attitude. Oh, shut up. Somebody pray in this house. I didn't come to decorate this pulpit with a sermon so that we could go home and forget that we were in the house of God. I came here today with a message of deliverance and grace saying that you will not need to be left out. His grace is available. But once the rapture takes place, there will not be another chance. And if there is another chance, it will be so hard. If conviction comes, the power of demons will be more active than the power of the Spirit because the Spirit will have departed. If you don't get it right now, what makes you think you'll get it right then? Don't wait till then. Do it now. Pastor, I need Christ in my life and I'm not going to dress it up. I'm not going to raise my hand for somebody else. Pastor, I need to be born again. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I'm going to do what Jesus did. I'm going to invite you. Head bowed and eyes closed. That's me, Pastor. I'm raising my hands right now. Hold it up. I don't have a lot of time, so I'm not going to beg. That's me. Hold it up a little. Somebody else. Keep it up for a moment. Keep it up. Pray, Christians. Thank you, Jesus. I see a couple of hands, and maybe there are others that I'm missing. Three. Thank you. There are others. Hold it up now. This is not about, about me. I'm not going to take you to heaven. I'm working to get there myself. Four. Somebody else. Keep it. Hold it up. Thank you, Jesus. The door is closing. I'll close it in five seconds. If you're holding it up, you do it now. And it's over. Put it down. Everybody in the house to encourage those who have prayed. Would everybody in the house repeat this prayer? With me out loud. Lord Jesus, no more will I abuse your gift of grace. I am sorry for the ways that I have responded to grace. Today, I confess I am a sinner. I am in need of being emptied of the lust of the flesh. And the lust of the eyes. And the pride of life. I owe my flesh nothing. I owe you, God, everything. Today, right now, 
I surrender to your grace. Thank you, Jesus. Wash away my sins. Move into my life. Change me. And from now on, I will appreciate and demonstrate grace. Amen and amen. Stand up all over the house. And after you stood up, come on and give the Lord some praise. Bring the praise team. Come on, everybody. Everybody, stand up and help me praise the Lord. Come on. Come on, everybody, help me praise the Lord. Put your hands together, gracious people. I want the prayer team to come and stand in the altar. We'll dismiss like that. Don't leave. I, I, I want you to get a little more grace. All the prayer team, come and stand. Listen to me now. If you gave your heart to the Lord, you need to come by and say something to one of these up here so that they won't, they won't embarrass you. If you rededicate your life to God, just say, today I entered back into grace. They will pray with you. They'll thank God for you. But if you need grace for something else, while others may need to go, if you need grace for healing, grace for your marriage, grace for a relationship, grace for finances, grace for whatever it is, for, for a reoccurring bondage, whatever you need, you don't have to leave here giving satisfaction to the flesh. Sing, my brother. Let's sing together. Come on. Lift your hands all over the house with me. Sing it with them. If you need prayer, come now. We're leaving just about a minute, but sing.